Hey, uh, history students, we're back in the studio once again. This time we're going to talk about the American Revolution, so pull up those slides and we'll uh, walk you through this with this uh, hopefully short lecture on that topic, although super interesting, okay? So the question that I'm going to try to answer with these slides is how did the colonists, and I'd like to refer to them as colonists because they haven't quite made that jump to be Americans. Uh, there really is nothing called the United States of America yet. Um, there's the seeds of that, but it hasn't really taken hold yet. Okay, so how did the colonists defeat Great Britain, the greatest army and navy in the world? And we've talked about before where the colonists really had, well, they had no navy and they virtually had no army. They were militia. And what are the three turning points in the American Revolution? Uh, I'm going to give you a lot of both of those. Okay, so how did they do it? And what are the turning points? So if you look at the American Revolution in a map uh, on slide number three, you'll see that it took place over the complete 13 colonies, really from Boston to South Carolina. But almost all, well, all of them were affected at some level. How did they do it? Well, there's, I'm going to give you five reasons as to why they did it how the colonists defeated Great Britain. One was this Continental Army and the dedication that they have. Joseph Plum Martin was a 15-year-old that joined the colony of the Continental Army and uh, was in the war from the beginning until the end of the conflict. And he represents um, the dedication of the soldiers and he's only one of the very, very few that we get uh, writings from. So after the war, Joseph Plum Martin uh, wrote his um, a book on his experiences during the war. So where we have a ton of information on people like Alexander Hamilton and George Washington and Nathaniel Green and others that were up in, higher up in the food chain, Joseph Plum Martin gives us the view of the soldier on the ground, which is pretty interesting. But the Continental Army was one reason. So the second reason was innovation. Uh, Americans have always been known for uh, changing things. Look at the, you know, the, the computer, the cell phone, um, and so many other things. Uh, music, you know, uh, recording it on, on vinyl or CD or uh, cassette. Um, all of those things, we've always looked at pushing the envelope on that. Not all of them originate in the United States, but um, that's part of our kind of DNA, I would suggest. The Continental Long Rifle was one of those innovations. Uh, it had rifling in the barrel itself, which allowed it to increase the range and accuracy, which is going to be pretty important in a conflict. Leadership, that's probably a no-brainer, but George Washington uh, is that person, and I think that George Washington not only knew that when he said perseverance and spirit have done wonders in all ages, but I think if, if he had to, uh, you had to identify one trait of Washington's that was most uh, amazing is that he persevered. He knew, understood that this was kind of like a marathon or an ultra marathon that he was going to run, and he was just never going to give up. Uh, that's that tenacity, tenacity that, uh, that many Americans display. So I've got this thing that might 
be confusing. It says interview time, and we're on slide seven, and <clears throat> the right choices. Well, one of the reasons George Washington was such a great leader, too, was that he wasn't, you know, uh, book smart. You know, we said before, you know, he didn't go to college, he went to war. And that really symbolizes a lot of things or tells us a lot of things about George Washington. He was that street smart kind of guy. And if you look at it, if we did this in class, we would actually have students play these parts of Henry Knox and Alexander Hamilton and Nathaniel Green. And they would tell you a couple things about George Washington. So let's just take a look at Henry Knox. So if you're George Washington and you're interviewing a guy named Henry Knox, and he comes in and you see his physical appearance, he's a very large individual that may concern you in the military. You know, most of the military people are very, uh, you know, in phenomenal shape. Um, my son's one of those. Um, he's in the ROTC at Indiana University, and and uh, he can do things like, you know, that I could never do, okay? So uh, this guy's also a bookstore owner. And so you're thinking, well, okay, what kind of experience do you have in the military? Well, he doesn't. He understands the academics of military. Would you want to go with a guy like that? Would you want to use a guy that's never actually had experience in the field? Probably not. Uh, also, if you wanted another chuck mark against him, is that his wife uh, and his her parents or his uh, uh, in-laws are loyalists. And a loyalist is a person that believes in the uh, British cause. Okay, so... On the face of things, Henry Knox would look like a person that you wouldn't want to hire for the military. He plays a critical role in the Continental Army. He will be head of the artillery, and he will be one of uh, Washington's closest advisors. The point through all of these people, as well as a guy named uh, von Steuben, which is on the podcast for this week, uh, he's a person, um, even him, uh, all of them represent that Washington sees through and defines their character and is willing to trust people that on the face of things don't have the qualifications for this job. Okay, so that's a real key element. If you're going to have leadership, you've got to identify the best in the people, and sometimes the best in the people might not jump out at you on their resume or something. Okay, so I'm going to skip through all the rest of those people you can take a look at them. The, the point is, one more time, you probably wouldn't want to hire any of them for those reasons I've outlined on the slides. Another reason is that women were critical to the continental uh, success. They managed farms. They created clothes. They were nurses. Sometimes they were even spies, camp followers, which means that they cleaned the camp, uh, helped tend to their husbands wounds or whatever. Uh, in some cases, they were even soldiers. Mary Ludwig Hayes is one of them that was an actual soldier in the war. Um, they did not, uh, the Continental Army did not know that at the time, and there was very few of these people. So, okay, so women played a really critical role in it. Joseph Plum Martin even writes a story in his biography about what, what women were doing uh, in the Continental Army, okay. Uh, British also made some mistakes here. So the British didn't really respect the colonists. You know, what we talked about before with the Seven Years' War, that this uh, 
divide was apparent between them, the two of them. Uh, and they also believed in, and maybe rightfully, but they believed in this idea of geography over destroying the continental army. They didn't want to punish them so much that they would be bad subjects for the crown if they were to win the war, and they suspected that they would. So the British wanted to take a kind of a middle road approach, like just take out the radicals and everybody else would you know, come back in. So they don't want to just punish them over and over and over again or destroy the army because what would be the relationship after the war on all of this? So they made the point of trying to negotiate and demonstrate their strength without really taking on the Continental Army directly or just wiping it out. And the best example of that happens in New York uh, in 1776 from August 27th to November 20th. Um, the Howe brothers, which are pictured on there, and this is slide number 15, really wanting to negotiate peace. Uh, they don't want to get into a major conflict. They bring in the big guns. These ships are enormous. Uh, there's somewhere around 300 of them that they bring in. Uh, this is a major invasion. They start off in what's called Long Island, just outside of New York City. Washington is caught in a trap. His men are, are their backs are against the East River, uh, just across from the city. Uh, fortunately for Washington, he's got these guys that we call marble-headed men. That's a place, Marblehead is a place in Massachusetts. They're sailors, and they transport 9,500 colonists uh, over from Long Island to New York City at night. And this is really, really critical because the British have brought up their big ships into this area and fortunately for John Glover and his marble-headed men, there's a fog that descends over this um, area and allows them to do that. They could have been captured. Had they been captured, well, we believe that you know the war would have been over right there. Okay, New York does not go well for them. It's a disaster, in fact. They keep on running from place to place. They keep on getting pushed back. Eventually, they leave New York and they get in all the way into New Jersey, which is state right next to them. So they run across that state, which is about 145, 48 miles in length. <clears throat> and everything's looking bad. I mean, this could not be any worse. Uh, enlistments are over at the end of the year. Uh, the British are offering, offering amnesty, which means that they'll you know, allow you to just drop your guns and swear allegiance to the crown and all is good. Okay, they capture one of the key uh, leaders in the Continental Army, Charles Lee. You could not write a script that looks any worse than this. I got a picture on uh, slide 23, you know, what do you do when things really go wrong? Just wanting you to kind of think of that idea. Uh, George Washington's back's up against the wall. We told you pers perseverance is the key uh, characteristic that he holds. And that's apparent in this picture or painting by Emanuel Lutz on slide 24. It's inaccurate in many ways, but it symbolizes what's going to happen when George Washington crosses the Delaware River. So he knows that he's going to lose an army at the end of the year, so he's got to gamble. He's got to play the lottery. He's got to throw in everything he can. And so to motivate his men, he gets them 
to cross over what's called Washington's Crossing, the Delaware, into New Jersey, and they're going to attack a city called Trenton. Uh, he does this the night of Christmas is when he starts moving, so the 25th to 26th. Takes these boats, 2,400 men. He splits these men into two di- different groups. And with that, the, the, the other key is that you have to know that the Battle of Trenton was uh, probably the worst night possible to execute a battle. It's sleeting, it's snowing, freezing temperatures. It's just absolutely brutal. Um, but for Washington, the gamble pays off. 1,500 Hessian soldiers are there. They capture most of them or kill them with almost little uh, effect on themselves. There's two uh, colonial soldiers that die. They die of hypothermia. They freeze to death, basically. Uh, One of the key leaders in all of this is a guy named Alexander Hamilton. And they eventually take... uh, uh, kill actually John Rawl. John Rawl is the uh, leader of the Hessians. Now the Hessians are a contentious group because the Hessians are German, so they're paid mercenaries. Another um, reason the colonists really dislike the British and is used for propaganda purposes uh, because now they're saying, hey, look, they're hiring people that aren't even British to come in here to, to defeat us. So that only galvanizes the cause that much more. This saves the day. George Washington gives this, you know, speech to his men, and uh, thirty-three uh, hundred of them stay with him. So this is a major turning point in the war, right? You have the causes that we went over, or the the reasons why the colonists defeated the British. Now we're talking about turning points. So uh, Washington's crossing or the Battle of Trenton is that. Okay. The next year probably would be even more important, 1777. We're on slide number 30 here. Uh, the winter during that period early, uh, there's a battle in Trenton, they call Trenton II, and then another one in Princeton uh, in New Jersey as well. And both of those are victories for the Continental Army. Eventually they settle in in Morristown, which is a camp in New Jersey, Uh, The winter is really, really bad there, but they survived that. The British still don't get the idea that the main uh, way to winning this war is going to be take out George Washington's army. In this case, what they're going to try to do is divide and conquer. They're relying on the fact that they think New England is the key to the rebellion. So if they can cut that off, they'll win. And if they can take over Philadelphia, which is the capital at the time, they will win. So those two are the key elements. So stage one is to cut off uh, what's considered the uh, Hudson River, which uh, borders New York with New England. And so they want to slice that off, take control of that, and then move down from New York City, which they took over, to Philadelphia. And once they have that, the, you know, the, the, the government will falter and fall. Okay? Sounds like a pretty good plan, but they're not really willing to, to, 
take out the army so much, the military. So the Battle of Brandywine is the uh, incursion into Philadelphia. Uh, George Washington does lose that. He gets pushed back to Valley Forge, which is what the podcast is about for Wednesday. So definitely listen to the podcast and do a response on that podcast. Again, what's interesting, exciting, and confusing about it. Okay, But up in New York, the Battle of Saratoga place, takes place. And Saratoga is right off the uh, Hudson River, not too far away from Albany, which is the capital of New York. And the short uh, story about it, this is that the Connell Army wins this victory. And really, based on the fact of one person, and that would be Benedict Arnold, somebody we wouldn't suspect would be a hero in the American Revolution, but was at this time. You can see that that's my son. He's now older than that, but we took a trip up there because that's what historians do or history teachers do. It is the turning point of the war because France finally recognizes America. So America needs allies, and they will get France and Spain. Uh, because why? Because they, by this time, France and Spain are thinking, wow, the colonists can actually win this war. And... Ben Franklin's pretty good at negotiation, and that doesn't hurt, okay? So most historians would say that this was the turning point in the entire war in all of early American history because of that fact, okay? Uh, I would have watched a video, had you watched a video on Benedict Arnold, I'm going to post uh, a link up to something that I find on Benedict Arnold and or the American Revolution, so you can do uh, a response to that as well. Remember, you always have podcasts that you do, so those are separate than other responses. And then you have responses, and you should do at least one to two a week uh, because to get all the points that you can. Okay, so the podcast would be next. That's all about Valley Forge and a guy named Von Steuben, okay, or Steuben. Um, the American Revolution continues in 78 and 79. Um, we've got kind of a goofy picture there with lightsabers. Reference to Star Wars, obviously, but the map there on slide number 30 or number 40, slide 40, is critical because what the, they do now is they think that they're going to move south. They're going to go to South Carolina. Again, war of geography. They believe that the southern people are much more um, open to the British. They're, there's more loyalists down there. And they're right in some ways. The rebellion really is contained largely to New England. Um, and as you go further and further south, the cause is you know less less um, there's a lot less support for the rebellion in southern states. okay So they make some mistakes here, okay They think that you know loyalists are going to be there, but they make a proclamation and this proclamation basically says that if you fight for us, African Americans, slaves, then we will free you. So in the southern states like South Carolina, North Carolina, even Virginia, this does not go over well. So what loyalist support that they had is virtually evaporated in this. Now, many African Americans do actually fight for the British cause because they want freedom. They know what freedom is. And they're all right with that. But major mistake by them, okay? 
the siege of Yorktown is considered to be like the last major battle conflict, okay? So it doesn't happen overnight. Usually battles are, if you're one, two, three days, they're called a battle. When it's a siege, it's over a period of time. So what they're trying to do is kind of put a, a noose around this area in Yorktown. General Cornwallis is the British general, and he's trying to get support from the British Navy from New York City, and that never materializes. Uh, he's got 9,000 men, and on George Washington's side, he's got 16,000, and he's got those French allies with him. And guess what? He's also got Joseph Plum Martin, guy that we told you about before. Okay. Uh, Alexander Hamilton is the hero at or one of the heroes at uh, uh, Yorktown, and the British finally surrender. The war is not officially over for a couple more years, but it will be over on September 3rd, 1783. They obtain their independence. Okay, Joseph Ellis has this quote about Washington and how he won the war. And it is true, if there's one person that we have to say that is critical to this whole thing, it was George Washington's leadership and his ability, perseverance, or true grit in all of this, okay? Was it really revolutionary? Was the revolution, it might be called American Revolution, but was it really revolutionary? Uh, Gender roles had changed somewhat, but they did not obtain political rights. So women didn't have political rights or legal rights. That's hardly revolutionary. African-Americans, some of them, again, obtained freedom and then were shipped up to Canada uh, by the British or back to England. Very few of them were. Um, if nothing else, the, uh, the slavery, that issue, seems to be even more solidified after the war. If there was one big loser in this, it's Native Americans because that uh, territory that we call the Midwest today is going to be now opened to the colonists. They can no longer deny that. So in the long run, the Native Americans are going to be the losers. Believe it or not, and we'll talk more about this next class, but the British are actually winners out of this. It's, it's hard to believe, but had they known this, they would have probably cut their losses much earlier. In the end, they ob- uh, obtain most of the trade um, by the colonists. So economically, it really benefits them, and they don't have to spend the money that they were spending before. So they don't have the headaches now, or they won't after the war, and they'll benefit because the Americans now are going to basically trade with them exclusively. And there's some trade with France as well, but for France, this actually works out really poorly. Because the uh, American Revolution leads to the bankruptcy of the French government, which leads to the French Revolution, which is uh, another topic for another day. But people like the king and the queen actually lose their heads uh, in the French Revolution. Okay, So hopefully you enjoyed this lecture. Uh, We'll chat about it on Wednesday. Um, Remember to submit those um, participation or responses to me uh, on podcasts and on any other topics. So have a great uh, day and uh, we'll chat with you later. Bye. Be safe.